Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have life to the full. God created you for abundant life. He longs for you to experience contentment, joy, rest, a life of creativity and generosity and fullness. Abundant life is life with Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Abundant life is a life in which we allow God to shape and form us into the image of Jesus. Our challenge is that we don't follow Jesus in a vacuum, but rather in a culture that is also seeking to form us into its image and likeness. And over the past 11 weeks, we've named some of the ways that our culture is malforming us by discipling us to be chronically busy and always in a hurry, to seek out distractions and to escape from reality, to be self-reliant and independent, to seek effortless power through technology, to build our identity around what we do and what we accomplish. And we know this because there are warning lights going off on the dashboard of our lives all the time. We find ourselves distracted, anxious, overwhelmed. We're over-functioning, but we don't know how to stop. We feel lonely and disconnected from others. We don't have time for what's most important, namely our relationships. We feel spiritually dry, emotionally wrung out, and physically spent. God has been displaced from the center and relegated to the fuzzy margins of our imaginations and our days. In the Bible, there is both a literal and a figurative Babylon. The literal Babylon was an empire in the Middle East that eventually became a superpower. In 586 BC, its army stormed into Jerusalem destroying the city and burning the temple to the ground. Many were killed, some fled. The best and brightest were carried off into exile in Babylon. Figuratively, Babylon in the Bible is a symbol for the kingdoms of this world that are opposed to the kingdom of God, the dominant culture that must be resisted by those who seek to follow Jesus. So for us, Babylon isn't so much America, but the world system that promotes greed and self-reliance, that cultivates fear and suspicion of the other, that makes human beings the measure of all things, that promises salvation through purchase or through sex, that sacrifices people and creation on the altars of power and profit and comfort. What gods are vying for your allegiance and devotion? Who or what is distracting you from putting God first in your life? Who or what are you looking to for abundance outside of Jesus? What's your kryptonite? What is standing between you and abundant life? How do we resist Babylon and keep God at the center of our lives. Resistance is hard work. 
it is not easy to live according to a unique set of beliefs and values, to zig when the world zags. And friends, cracking open our Bibles for a few minutes every morning is not going to suffice. It's not going to get the job done. How then do we resist the empire? And the answer is by cultivating a rule of life. A rule of life is an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything that we do. Today we're going to look at a case study, a young man named Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish teenager when Babylon sacked Jerusalem in 586 BC. Chances are he was torn from his loved ones that day as he watched the city that he loved burn. He was then chained to soldiers and made to walk 500 miles to Babylon. Now, there's a reason that empires didn't just kill everyone when they sacked a city. They wanted to enrich themselves with human capital. Daniel was brought to Babylon because he was brilliant and talented. Listen to how his story begins, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He used to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So, from uh, Babylon's perspective, the plan was to assimilate Daniel and these other young men into Babylonian culture, first by giving them a top-notch education in which they would be steeped in the culture and customs of the empire, and then by giving them pretty high-ranking jobs in the State Department. Good jobs. So imagine you're Daniel. You have been dragged 500 miles from home. You have been immersed in a new culture where you keep being told over and over again that you're special, that you won the lottery, that you get to be a person of power and wealth and influence in the greatest empire on earth. And in the meantime, everything that you know and love is gone. Your family, the temple, the feast days, the music, everything that used to sustain you is gone. The odds were so stacked against Daniel to remain faithful to Yahweh in Babylon. Maybe you can identify with Daniel on some level. Maybe you feel like you are steeped in a way of life that is at odds with the way of Jesus. So how does Daniel resist the empire? How does he maintain his distinct identity as a follower of Yahweh? Well, Daniel has a trellis. He has a rule of life, an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything he does. So let's dive into the text. 
um, to see what this looks like. And we're going to look at three different vignettes from Daniel's life. And we'll begin in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And then verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So what's going on here? One of the perks of being in the king's college was having access to the king's food and wine. This would have been the best food and wine available. But Daniel refuses to eat it. Why? Scholars have different theories. One theory is that the king's food included things that, um, that the, the, the law of Moses precluded him from eating. Maybe it was pork. Maybe it was horse meat. Another theory is that it had been sacrificed to Babylon's gods, and so it would have violated his conscience. Another theory is that eating the king's food would have been interpreted as a sign of unconditional loyalty to the king. It's possible all three of these things were in play for Daniel. But regardless, the food pricked Daniel's conscience, and he resolved not to defile himself with it. Now, how often do you eat over the course of a week, or a year, or a lifetime. That's how often Daniel made a conscious decision to put God first. To not only obey God, but to trust that God would sustain him physically. Now, this was, this was very complicated, because you don't just reject a royal gift, especially when everyone else is dining on the king's food. So how does Daniel navigate this? Does he hide the food in his napkin? Does he swirl it around his plate, pretend to eat it? No, he goes straight to his supervisor and he says, I cannot in good conscience eat this food. And listen to verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. In other words, Daniel, I like you, but shut up and eat. If the king sees you wasting away, I'm the one who's going to lose my head, not you. And then verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard, Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. A test. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, don't make the mistake that many moderns do and go looking for dieting advice here. That's not the point. The point is Daniel trusts God to sustain him physically. And he trusts God to vindicate him to the powers that be. And as a result, he is able to be both confident and humble in the face of this predicament. How does Daniel resist the empire? First, he has a daily practice of depending on God rather than the king. Of sacrificing some of the perks and privileges of his life in order to put God first. What is the world serving you right now that has become a substitute, a functional substitute for relying on God? 
What are you consuming that looks good but is actually defiling you? What are you, where are you compromising in your life? In chapter 2, the, the king has a, a troubling dream, and no one on his staff, no one in his inner circle can interpret the dream. So eventually he freaks out, and he just decides he's going to have everyone in that branch of the government be executed. Apparently kings can do that. Um, when the commander comes to round up Daniel, Daniel offers to go and interpret the king's dream. Even though at that point, Daniel knew nothing about the king's dream. Pick up in chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So when Daniel faces a crisis, he goes straight to his friends and he asks them to pray. He leans on his spiritual community to the point of vulnerability. He shares his predicament with them. He doesn't try to push through on his own. When you are in crisis, where do you turn? Is prayer your first instinct or is it a last resort? Do you internalize your anxiety or do you share it with your friends? The third episode I want us to look at happens much later, almost 70 years later, when Daniel by this time is in his 80s. I think we're going to have to update some flannel graph now that I think about this. By this point, Daniel has earned a reputation for his wisdom and administrative moxie. He has risen up the ranks and has become what is effectively the Secretary of State under King Darius. As a result, his colleagues are incredibly jealous of his success. They look for a way to get rid of him, but since they can't find any moral fault in Daniel, they convince the king to issue an edict. And the edict says for the next 30 days, no one is allowed to pray to anyone except for the king. And if they do, that person must be thrown into the lion's den. And of course, the king was happy to have his ego stroked, and so he signed the decree. So we're in chapter 6, verse 10 of Daniel. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So the trap has been set. Everything is on the line. This is the ultimate loyalty test. And what does Daniel do? He goes home three times a day. He gets down on his knees, faces Jerusalem, and prays to Yahweh, threats be damned. Daniel keeps God at the center of his life. He is not intimidated or coerced into abandoning his trellis or his God. And I love this little editorial comment. 70 years in, 70 years in, we learn that Daniel has been engaged in this practice of kneeling prayer three times a day the entire time. Daniel doesn't give God 10 or 15 minutes in the morning and then spend the rest of his day on autopilot. He pauses throughout the day to be with God. 
These are powerful habits, friends. Refusing the king's food is an act of trust and obedience and reliance on God. Going to his friends in weakness and asking them to pray for him. Kneeling three times a day to be with God and to thank him. Daniel had a conscious and deliberate plan to keep God at the center of his life. And as a result, he was against all odds able to maintain his distinct identity as a follower of Yahweh. He was able to resist the empire. For 70 years across four different administrations, Daniel had the courage and the confidence to speak truth to power, to offer his gifts in service really to his enemies, to ask his friends for help, to walk with integrity. And even when he was threatened with the lion's den, he continued to do what by then had just become natural to him. Isn't that beautiful? Daniel lived an abundant life in exile, under constant threat, with minimal support. What's our excuse? He did it by having a conscious and deliberate plan to keep God at the center of his life. And here's the kicker. As a result, Daniel was an enormous gift to the empire. See, often we think that if we want to make a difference in the world, we have to play by its rules. We have to compromise. We have to blend in. We have to minimize the friction. We have to assimilate. In reality, it's our uniqueness, it's our distinctiveness as Christ followers that is our gift to the world. Daniel's gift to Babylon was that he was a person of integrity who could not be intimidated or corrupted, who spoke truth to power, who relied on God to give him wisdom and insight, not just into the king's dreams, but on a whole host of things. And that is why Daniel became the second most powerful person in Babylon, not because he assimilated, not because he blended in, but because he resisted. Because he remained faithful to Yahweh. Not only did Daniel's trellis keep God at the center of his life, it made him a gift to the empire. Friends, your greatest gift to the world will flow out of your intimacy with Jesus. Your neighbors will be blessed if you keep Jesus at the center of your life. If you remain in the vine. If you want to be a blessing to your family, to your workplace, to your school, to your community, to your campus, to your friends, to your neighbors, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Become like Jesus. That is our gift to the world. And it starts by developing a deliberate, conscious plan to be with Jesus so that over time we can become like Jesus. All right, let's get really practical. We need to craft a rule of life that is personal, communal, and evolving. Personal, communal, and evolving. By personal, I'm recognizing that each of us is wired differently. We experience God differently. We have different dispositions, different temptations. Habits that nourish me 
might frustrate you and vice versa. You can imitate someone's devotion, but you do not have to imitate their rule. On the back of your take-home in your bulletin is a rule-of-life worksheet that looks like this. Can you dig that out? This is a tool that was developed by Pete Scazzaro, and he says that a rule of life should include four things, habits of prayer, work, rest, and relationships. Prayer habits are our habits of being with God. Things like reading scripture and praying before you pick up your phone in the morning. Reading and discussing the Bible with other believers at least once a week. Pausing at midday to be with God. Practicing the Ignatian Eximen three nights a week before bed. Memorizing a verse of scripture every week. Fasting from one meal a week or one full day a month. Going on a silent retreat every year. These are just examples. They're not requirements. Just giving you examples. What is your conscious and deliberate plan for practicing the presence of God? For marinating in his word. Work refers to the act of life, what we do. Things like serving on a ministry team, spending time with the poor and vulnerable, exercising three times a week to care for your body, inviting someone over twice a month to share a meal with you. What gifts do you have that you can share with others? What habits might allow you to share those gifts in a joyful and sustainable way? Then there are habits of rest, things like ceasing from work for 24 hours every week so that you can rest, delight, and worship. Turning off your devices one hour every evening and for as much of your Sabbath as possible. Learning to live on 90% of your income or less so that you can be generous towards others. Praying and counting the cost before saying yes to a new commitment. Finally, we need habits of relationship. For example, sharing a meal with others without any distractions five times a week. Going for a walk or having coffee with a friend once a week. Meeting with a small group twice a month for prayer and Bible study. Meeting monthly with a mentor or spiritual director. A rule of life is personal because it includes the habits that help you sustain your soul your faith, that keep Jesus at the center of your life. If there's a habit that does not help you draw closer to God, don't force it. I've tried at various times in my life to get into journaling, and it's just never really worked for me, and I've accepted that. What habits help you to draw closer to Jesus? What habits nurture your soul? Focus on those. A rule of life is personal, it's also communal. The Christian life, we say over and over again, is a shared life. We thrive spiritually when we have a shared rule with others who are also following Jesus. For example, as a church, we gather weekly for worship. We celebrate the Lord's Supper twice a month. We gather daily during Holy Week to meditate on Jesus' mission and sacrifice. 
We set aside seasons for prayer and discernment, like when we consider who should serve as elders and deacons, or right now as we gather to examine our vision together. If you belong to a small group, you have a shared rhythm of practicing and receiving hospitality, praying for one another, meditating on and applying scripture together, caring for one another. If you serve on a ministry team, you have rhythms for learning and growing together, discerning and praying together, and serving tangibly together. Perhaps you have a friend with whom you practice incarnational listening or sharing your consolations and desolations. If you want to get in the habit of exercising, it's good to have a gym buddy, isn't it? If you want to develop a spiritual habit, it's good to have a friend, a community who can cheer you on and hold you accountable. So a rule of life is personal, it's communal, it's evolving. Crafting a rule of life takes time. There's lots of trial and error. Plus, you are going to evolve. The demands on your life are going to change. Your temptations will change. Your attention span and maturity will change, hopefully for the better. Your needs will change. Your energy will change. Your relationships will change. When I was younger, music was a huge part of how I connected with God. That's where my kids are right now. As I got a little older, the act of life became a driving force in my relationship with Jesus, developing my gifts, serving others, catalyzed my faith, taught me to depend on God and other people. As I got older, study became huge. I devoured books. I loved to sit at the feet of my, my mentors and teachers. Right now, setting limits, learning how to slow down, learning how to enjoy silence and solitude are a huge part of my spiritual formation in the season. Next season, I have no idea what that's going to look like, but it'll be different. But we evolve, and our relationship with God evolves, and that's okay. And we need to be patient and gentle with ourselves. It's okay to take incremental steps toward a goal. Every one of us will struggle at times to follow through with our plan. None of us will be as consistent as we want to be, and that's okay. At least we have a target to aim at. But don't be hard on yourself. If you fall flat on your face on Monday, you've got a fresh start on Tuesday. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. They are new every morning morning. When you fail 14 days in a row, they are new every morning. St. Benedict offers this gentle warning. He says, do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It is bound to be narrow at the outset. New habits almost always feel awkward at first. But he says, as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of love. What feels difficult or awkward at the beginning will eventually feel normal and life-giving. What begins as a discipline eventually becomes a source of joy. I see this every time I teach emotionally healthy discipleship courses. In the beginning, the practice of silence is so 
painful for almost everyone in the class. But by the end of the eight weeks, people talk about how much they look forward to their silence in God's presence twice a day. First 35 years of my life, I did not know what a limit was. Now, I love embracing my limits. They are a gift to me that help me to protect the most precious things in my life, my relationships. Sometimes before we can cultivate a new habit, we have to remove an obstacle. Daniel realized that partaking of the king's food would have been an obstacle to his spiritual growth. For years, hurry and busyness were obstacles to my life with God. That and the idea that I had to do everything by myself. Sometimes the first step to spiritual growth is to remove something from your life, not add anything to it. Often abundant life is the result of doing less, not more. The word no is a powerful word. Use it liberally to protect your yeses. Crafting a rule of life and cultivating spiritual habits will not make God love you because God already loves you. There is nothing that you could ever do to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now. Spiritual habits are not designed to make God love us. They are designed to bring us in touch with the God who already loves us. So here's my invitation to you. Take time today and this week with your rule of life worksheet. Start by writing down what you are already doing. And you might be surprised by all that's already in place in your life. Do this in blue or black ink. What am I doing to connect with God? What am I doing to set limits and to rest? What am I doing to serve others? And then use a different color, maybe a red pen, to write down habits you would like to cultivate in the future. And then, and this is really important, circle one of those things in red. And that's going to be the habit that you focus on developing over the next three months. Don't try to build or augment or supercharge your rule of life all at once. Focus on one habit at a time. Maybe you think through, God, is there a way I want to be able to imitate Jesus more fully? What one habit would help me to do that? And focus on that one habit. And then share your worksheet, share your one habit with a trusted spiritual companion and ask them to pray for you and to check in with you and maybe offer to do the same for them. Next Sunday, we're going to hear from a panel of men and women of all different ages and stages of life talk about their process of building their trellis and trying their best to keep Jesus at the center of their lives. And I think it'll be a really great conversation. So let's pray. Father, you are inviting us to immerse ourselves in the life of the Trinity, to be with you, to delight in you, to rejoice in you, to trust you, to rest in you, to obey you, and to love you supremely so that we can become like you. Show us how to resist the empire by fixing our eyes on Jesus, trusting 
that as we do, we will become the kind of people that the world needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.